Welcome everyone to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. We're the first and only podcast that invites the country's most powerful leaders and asks them to be totally vulnerable and share their flaws, their imperfections, and of course their wisdom. Our goal isn't to embarrass our guests, rather it's to inspire our listeners to become more self-aware and to start right now developing the leadership skills valued by the most admired organizations on the planet. If you like the show, we invite you to join our community of Imperfect Leaders at www.imperfectleaders.com. You'll receive weekly episodes in your inbox and invitations to join private discussions with the country's top leaders, mentors, and executive coaches. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. Today's guest, Dr. Rakesh Suri, is one of the most admired heart transplant surgeons alive, with long stints at both the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, the top two hospitals in the entire world. Rakesh was such a great leader at the Cleveland Clinic that the board of directors asked him if he would help build a brand new world-class hospital in the middle of the desert in Abu Dhabi. He succeeded beyond everyone's wildest dreams. The new hospital is literally an innovation factory with the world's best surgeons and staff. Also joining today's podcast is Linda Hill. She's an esteemed professor of leadership and innovation at the Harvard Business School. Professor Hill was so impressed with Rakesh that she wrote several Harvard Business School case studies on the Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi to help students and executives across the world learn how to build an innovative organization. Professor Hill provides her own perspective on Dr. Suri and advice to all our listeners who want to become even better leaders and innovators. You know, when you talk about transplantation, by the time you actually do one, you've you've seen uh, hundreds, uh, literally, of heart surgeries, and therefore you understand the complexities of the anatomy, the physiology, and importantly, how the team needs to work together to make it a success. Do you somehow in that operating room get into a particular kind of zone or even a routine that things just feel like they're coming in naturally in a flow? The word flow resonates. Uh, many of us who have either run or done different types of sports that are repetitive really know what that feels like to lose one's sense of conscious uh, attention to the minute my minute and get into a state of contemplation on a broader plane. Mm. There's a very analogous feeling as a heart surgeon, but that doesn't come until you've done hundreds, if not thousands of surgeries. When you say being nervous, it's, it's really an attention to detail that is it at brings one's consciousness to the most focused level that one can imagine. And then as one becomes familiar or as a surgeon and a surgical team, again, working together becomes very familiar with each of the team members' skills, collaboration, and ability to course correct, then the team can get into a state of flow that really is magical and, and really is quite relaxing. If you speak to surgeons and surgical teams, they work together for decades. 
And some of their most relaxing moments are, in fact, in the operating room, performing some of the most complex surgeries. So that's maybe an insight that many people wouldn't expect. But if you really speak to a surgeon in a surgical team, this is a very common narrative. And conversely, if, you know, somebody's sick on the team or they have a vacation, does that somehow throw off your flow? That's exactly right. And we've noticed this. Uh, with increasing frequency now with the staffing shortages we're facing across healthcare, There's been losses due to sickness, uh, either personal or family sickness, changing life circumstances, job transitions, et cetera, that have had team members that have been working together for decades, literally disappear from the scene all of a sudden. And what this has done, it's really challenged many surgical teams and in fact, many teams across healthcare to be able to perform at the same level. I'm not saying it's it's unsafe because it's our job to ensure that when we deploy a procedure or a technique, it's at the safest level possible so that we can ensure an outcome for our patient that we can stand behind. But becomes more challenging when the team members that you've worked with for years and decades suddenly disappear. Sometimes doctors and especially surgeons are accused of having a God complex. But on the other hand, if I'm a patient, I want a surgeon who's confident and in total control. What are your thoughts on this whole notion of doctors having a God complex? I mean, is that even fair? So I think that was a historic perspective that probably largely echoed the ecosystem of society. In other words, the inability to challenge leadership and to speak truth to leadership and to speak up when one saw something that wasn't right. We can find these examples through society, through governmental leadership, business leadership, and even medical leadership now. So I think that this this notion of having a superior voice has diminished. Mm-hmm. And I, I we were all embracing across all segments of society a, a healthier perspective that has every voice being heard and honored and integrated into the path forward. And this is has never been more true than in medicine and in the surgical suites of the operating rooms of 2022. Mm-hmm. So I'm endlessly fascinated by um, how someone, anyone can become a heart surgeon. I mean, did you know that you always wanted to get into medicine, even when you were a little kid? Well, I started my life with a deep sense of societal responsibility. And I don't know quite where that came from. It may have arisen from the fact that I I come from a multicultural family. My father came from India to Canada in the 60s when he was in his 20s and met my mother who's Ukrainian Canadian and I had the opportunity to travel around the world from the point uh, that I could I could remember in fact when I was a baby I was on airplanes and during those travels I remember vividly encountering those who had much less and in much more difficult circumstances than I had growing up And if you can imagine being a child in the 70s and seeing this great disparity in in health and medicine and the fundamentals of life, I suppose it really gave me a a sense of responsibility. And that 
theme continued into university as I started in my uh, academic career uh, at university. I studied philosophy as part of my science background. Where was um, that? That was at Queen's University in Canada. Mm-hmm. And then from that, developed uh, a, a commitment to apply to medical school and then was accepted into the medical program at the University of Toronto. I spent those years being being broad, though. I, I really explored everything from family medicine to pediatrics to uh, liver transplantation and cardiothoracic surgery. And in the end, it's a calling. Well, we, we're all grateful to our mentors, and uh, I couldn't be more thankful to those who pointed me uh, along the way in the direction that I find myself in now. So I, I uh, was accepted into the training program at the Mayo Clinic. And there I found a, a willing set of mentors who thoughtfully and very graciously guided me on the journey, embedded me as part of the team. And I was very humbled to be invited on the staff at the Mayo Clinic, where I further pursued my passion mm-hmm. to defining the timing of mitral valve and valve repair surgery to uh, evolving the effectiveness of repairing those valves and then doing it robotically, minimally invasively, where we built one of the foremost teams anywhere in creating a new paradigm where we could fix these heart valves without ever opening the central bone of the chest or the sternum. We literally could perform them robotically through incisions the size of a fingertip or two. And were you part of the team that actually created that robotic system no, the, the the robotic system that exists is FDA approved and was in uh, development for many years prior. Uh, but there was a point that uh, it it was had was done in different parts of the body on different organ systems, but not done frequently to correct heart conditions. And this is really where the power of the team at the Mayo Clinic came in. We assembled a multidisciplinary team of nurses, perfusionists, anesthesiologists, and a co-surgeon partner of mine, Dr. Harold Burkhart. And together we trained, we trained, we studied, we we um, examined where we were strong, where we needed to grow. We traveled to see, form leading teams around the world, um, perform different types of minimally invasive surgery. And then through that, we uh, we developed Uh, our own robotic mitral valve repair program at the Mayo Clinic. It was one of the most inspiring and memorable times of my surgical career because really what it it amounted to was setting a vision for the improvement of the human condition, leveraging all of the innovations of of our forebearers and our mentors, gathering a team of, of willing compatriots, aligning them, mm-hmm. establishing metrics, and then allowing everyone to do what they do best. And that little example has been extended across my leadership journey, subsequently to the Cleveland Clinic and around the world. And it's still something that I find very, very powerful. And it all started out in a cardiac surgical operating room for me in Rochester, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say that Uh, When we recruit people to organizations like Mayo and Cleveland, 
we look for a few things. Everybody is competent. There's no question about that. We're, people are performing at the top of their game at these organizations and other organizations without supremacy, I, I should add. Uh, but the second thing that we look for is character, meaning people's values in any organization, particularly in healthcare, need to align with the values of the populations and the communities we serve and the values of the the organization and the third thing is compassion and i think that's been eminently demonstrated in in the pandemic i mean you could be the best heart surgeon or anesthesiologist or nurse or hospital administrator but we're all humbled by the ability that we had to either remain well or fall sick during this pandemic. And it doesn't matter what your title is or how much money you made or how many papers you published. At the end of the day, we all had to be compassionate with each other because healthcare and, and human existence through health and illness is a very humbling uh, journey. And being vulnerable and being compassionate with each other has been shown to me and to all of those that I worked with through the pandemic in a, in a, in a, in a poignant way that we've never seen uh, through our lives. So you then made one of the hardest possible transitions in health, the health industry that I can imagine. You went from a heart surgeon um, to a senior executive at the Cleveland Clinic. At a very high level, what was that transition like going from the operating room to the boardroom? So scary as heck is the first thing I would say. And uh, we we all made mistakes and make mistakes in everything we do. So there were moments where I stood back and said, gosh, I shouldn't have done that or we shouldn't have done that or we, we could have done that differently. But great leaders, and I think particularly as all of us mature through life, have the opportunity to stand back and say with greater transparency and greater openness, gosh, I could have done that differently, or I wish I had thought about this, or maybe I could have uh, collected the opinions of others before I acted on these things. So I think that uh, the transition from a surgical operating room to managing surgical and innovation teams that were a part of my pedigree before I went into hospital leadership prepared me in some ways. But then when you make that leap into doing things on an organizational level and being responsible for many more people, you really need to look around, learn from others, be open, be willing to admit mistakes, and then say you'll do things better or differently moving forward. I think this this paradigm serves us all well, regardless of what role we have in life. And so you obviously did something right, because the board of Cleveland Clinic, you know, eventually asked you to start a subsidiary, uh, a world-class hospital right smack dab in the middle of the desert in Abu Dhabi. So I'm going to ask you about this in one second, uh, Rakesh. Uh, because most of us would have no freaking idea how to even get started. But first, I, I want to ask Linda. Uh, and Linda, again, you're one of the top experts on the planet when it comes to leadership and innovation. Uh, and you decided Rakesh's story was so compelling that you decided to write a Harvard Business School case study on his experiences at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. 
So before I get back to Rakesh, you know, Linda, what did attract you to this story at a high level? Well, I have to say it's been very interesting listening to Rakesh tell his story, because now I think part of it may be that our hearts connected before our heads did. Uh, When he was talking about why, in fact, he pursued his career, it's very aligned in part with my own in the sense, because I was just talking to someone yesterday about when I lived in Thailand, and that is where I went to high school, my mother signed me up to work in a leprosarium. And I must say, I was not too happy about that. I was raised in the Christian faith and I had read the Bible and I thought, I don't know that I really want to be with lepers anywhere, particularly maybe in Thailand where they don't really have very good health care. My father was actually in healthcare as well. He was an administrator. She also signed me up to work in an orphanage for the children of, of prostitutes. So I would sort of see what that experience was like. And I must confess, so very early in my life, I was traveling because my father was in the military and my father and mother came from very modest means themselves. But when we went to India when I was 14 and I saw the poverty that was there at that time, I guess I got exposed to seeing that I was a very blessed person. So whenever I begin to feel sorry for myself, I needed to stand up straight and get moving in the right direction. So I think on some level, we never really talked about our backgrounds, but I see a lot of parallels there. But what made me, so one of the things I would say, and the reason I went through that is because one of my concerns as a professor at a Harvard at Harvard Business School and in writing cases is we want to share examples with MBAs and executives around the world about what leadership can be, and really how it is not just about rights and privileges, but more about duties and obligations. And so that sense of responsibility that I guess I saw in Rakesh when he was actually taking a course with me as an executive really caught my attention. But on a more intellectual level, my research is on leadership, globalization, and innovation. And in particular, with regard to leadership, I'm interested in how stars learn to lead. So when Rakesh was telling me about different opportunities he had and what he might be doing, you know, they immediately interested me because if you look at having to work at, you know, lead a Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, there's leadership. He was a star who, if you will, became a leader and both that that whole piece of the puzzle and the complexity there. Globalization, how do you take Cleveland Clinic, which is a spectacular hospital? I'm on the board of the Brigham and Mass General Brigham. So, you know, I I look at Cleveland Clinic. How do you take that model, which is a very collaborative model and and put it in another place to work in an environment in which I've been visiting for about actually by that time, 15, 16 years. And finally, innovation, the whole effort and focus of what they were trying to do in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi really did focus on how do we build a world class healthcare organization that is very innovative. So, you know, our interests were aligned in terms of my my head, but I think fundamentally, if I look at the heart piece of it, uh, that must have been happening, even though we never really talked about it. We did talk about the fact that my husband is a pediatric cardiologist. Uh, He was going to do surgery on top of that, but he'd done the physician scientist thing. And I kept saying, will you ever really get a job? So he didn't end up doing the final surgery piece. But I think on many, many levels, we connected in class and after class. And I I just have been blessed and have actually written, if you will, or developed with my research associate, three cases about Rakesh and his colleagues at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, because uh, really what we saw there and what we got to learn is just spectacular and wanted to share it. So Rakesh, how did you do this? I mean, you're tasked with building a world-class hospital in the middle of the desert. Seems like a lot of challenges. Uh, not the least of which is how do you attract the best surgeons in the world to Abu Dhabi? Uh, what was it like being the top leader at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi? And what was your vision and how did you do it? 
It was really about bringing world-class people and their families to a new city in a new country and, and developing a new way of operating together. So we we worked hard to make that happen in terms of attracting people. One thing that uh, came up over and over again as CEOs from world-leading academic medical centers who visited asked routinely was, how did you get these people here? And I always started with the fact that people attract people. And particularly in medicine, uh, the area that I know the best, people want to work with great people, not only, again, those who are the of the highest competence, but also good people who, again, have aligned values and who will treat them compassionately. So competence, character, and compassion. Once you do that and you bring people together, then you need to act and deliver on your promises. You need to give them meaningful work so that they can develop what they love doing in their own careers, in their own practices, in their new environment. So delivering the volume of patients and the complexity benefits two important stakeholders in the milieu, which are the patients and the providers. And the third is the communities that we serve, not only in Abu Dhabi, but broadly across the Middle East. So it's all about the teams. It's all about the people. Without the people and the teams, the leader is nothing. And in terms of attracting the best and the brightest, need to search for those with the highest level of competence, character, and compassion give them meaningful work, teach them how to work together in the culture you're creating and be able to allow them to grow in their own careers. Yeah, but let me play devil's advocate. You know, in a sense, you're sitting down with a blank sheet of paper, right? There's nothing there in the desert until you and your team start to create it. So how do you even recruit those first few star surgeons to Abu Dhabi to convince a patient that, you know, having a heart procedure there is every bit as good as going to Cleveland and doing it there. So this is a very interesting hypothesis because there's a few of us who have led globally in healthcare that I think feel similarly. And here's how it goes. There's three, at least three phases of evolution of a greenfield medical organization in the US, but probably outside of the US for this argument. The first are the innovators who want to build something that's never been built before. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly the case with the hospital we're speaking about. It was truly one of the most beautiful and best equipped hospitals anywhere on the planet with a very inspiring vision and mission to impact the lives of nearly 3 billion people, 3 billion people within a six hour flight radius. Mm. So that, that was started out as being a very inspiring and first in world opportunity that attracted a unique set of individuals to be a part of that initial building uh, and launching journey. Mm -hmm. What we noticed very quickly as the the work started to grow, meaning patients started to come in and our volume started to build, some of those initial pioneers actually moved on. In other words, they moved on to a, a new innovative greenfield project 
And I found this initially perplexing as a, as a, as a new hospital leader. I thought, well, wouldn't they have come and wanted to stay the whole time? And in fact, that wasn't the case because there was this sense of exhilaration associated with conceiving and building something. And then the next wave of leaders that came really were of the mindset that they wanted to create novel programs and deliver the highest level of safety, quality, patient experience, and at the best value that they could anywhere, perhaps without the historic constraints of the countries that they came from. Mm -hmm. And that really characterized the second wave of pioneers into the ecosystem. The third was a path sustainability. They had the opportunity to create something in a different part of the world at the next level. And in other words, the path to sustainability, which involved not only safety, quality, and patient experience, but innovation. And it was during this phase that we launched different things, such as the nation's first multi-organ transplant program, uh, developed centers of excellence for brain care, heart care, uh, cancer, women's health, uh, and respiratory critical care and beyond. And it was this ecosystem and infrastructure building that really set the country and the city up well to work with partners locally to ensure that Abu Dhabi was one of the safest places on the planet during the pandemic. So really, there were three phases, Jeff. There were the pioneers who wanted to build. There were those that wanted to open and create something very nimbly. And then there were the third group that really wanted to innovate, uh, sustain, and start to publish for the world to see what, what could be done. Gotcha. And Rakesh, how would you describe your leadership style? I mean, I know that vulnerability is a key piece of that. And I actually remember listening to Linda do a podcast with Brene Brown, and I believe she was talking about you uh, addressing the troops in Abu Dhabi. And you told the team that you kind of feel like you're leading through a fog, but I trust you, you know, and so how would you describe your leadership style and the role vulnerability plays in the way that you lead? So, so the first thing is that it's never static. How I lead now is different than 2015 is different than 2006. And I think that's true for all leaders. We're always learning minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And I think that not only as we gain more experience, but as we age and go through the, the, uh, the struggles and the successes of life in general, in and out of our professional environments, we learn how to integrate a sense of vulnerability, accountability, uh, being able to pivot, being able to admit our mistakes, and then being able to align people towards a new pathway forward. In terms of an analogy, for me, it's like skiing down a mountain in the middle of a snowstorm with the tip of the skis being not visible through it all. You don't know if you're going to hit a rock or go over a cliff, and therefore then the need to react quickly in unknown environments where there are so many uncertainties and so many uh, contingencies that have never been encountered before uh, is, is at a different level. In other words, as a leader, one learns to be able to let things percolate, 
gather consensus, seek input, and then react. In the midst of a crisis or an emergency, whether you're in the operating room or leading a hospital during the pandemic, or creating a, a merger and acquisition play across multiple sites, when things are happening quickly, our ability to lead vulnerably and empathetically sometimes suffers. And learning about the situations that lead to that risk, I think, defines our maturation as leaders. So when things get get sticky or hairy, what's really important is to take a deep breath, think about things in terms of short, medium, and long-term, address the urgent of the urgent, utilizing the best information, the best intuition that's available, and then delay decisions that don't need to be made imminently in order to take the time to gather the right opinions and consensus to make them thereafter. And I think the same is true of the longer term decisions. As a new leader, sometimes we make everything urgent. And by reacting too quickly and potentially too uh, forcefully, we we can make some mistakes. And I think that's been one of the biggest lessons on my leadership journey that I can share to date. And when you were in the thick of it in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, did you feel, I mean, I know that you felt like you were skiing down that uh, that uh, slope, not being able to see the tip of your skis. Did you share those feelings with your team? The answer is yes. There's different times to share different types of vulnerabilities. So when you're in the middle of an operating room and all of a sudden the aorta starts to bleed, you take your finger and you put it on the hole. Uh, it's it's natural, instinctual response to stop something bad from happening. And the same is true in leadership. However, after a case in the operating room, we always do a debrief. Mm-hmm. This is new, by the way. This has only been in the last no, sort of five, six years that we've been doing these things regularly. But it's all, taught us all to evolve as surgeons and as surgical teams. Mm-hmm such that we say, hey, how did things go? And we we elicit the opinion from everybody in the, in the room. And we say, what's your opinion? And what did you think went well? And what did you think didn't go well? And what do you think we could have done better next time? And then how do we act on it to ensure that these learnings are embedded into our protocols moving forward? The same is true in leadership. There are times when we can stand back and analyze how things went, what went well, what didn't go well, how we can do things differently. And there are times that we just need to act and then do the debrief later. And during the pandemic, uh, it was very clear that we needed to shorten the cycle time of those occurrences. So we went from weekly meetings to twice daily meetings uh, during the pandemic. We stood up an emergency task force that would meet at least once daily, And then as an executive team, we would touch base with our nurse leaders, our physician leaders, and in fact, the the task force team at least twice a day and um, have briefings across our executive team with the internal and external stakeholders at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, and in fact, across our executive team across the world. So it's really important during times of crisis to increase our ability to communicate and stand back and show vulnerability 
at the right time in the right way for the right outcome. I love that. And Linda, I'm dying to get back to you for some high level context and perspective. And you've done a deep dive in some of the most innovative organizations on the planet, including this one. What sticks out in your mind about his story? Well, there are many, many pieces to it. As I mentioned, it is a case that really covers all of my passions, leadership, globalization, and innovation. So the cases that we've written can fit into many different places and many different courses. So it's a little hard for me to to answer you, except to say that what we do see when we look at leaders who have been able to build organizations that can routinely innovate and in fact are very nimble is that they do tend to have a common mindset. Now, their style of behaving can vary considerably, frankly. We've looked at people all over the world in a whole range of different contexts, but how they think about what they're doing is rather similar. Mm. Now, the first thing I want to say is that the people we've elected to study have all been people who I think we would agree are visionaries. And I mean even visionaries with the big V, if you will. But they know how to make the space for others. And what you've heard, heard from Rakesh from the very beginning is he wanted to talk about the team, not just about himself. And so they do have this collaborative point of view. They understand very well that innovation rarely happens, you know, from some individual genius having an aha moment. It's very much about the context you're in and creating a context in which all of you will be willing and able to do what's necessary to innovate. And so the commonality we see is that these leaders, on some level, maybe they haven't studied it or maybe they have, they really get what it takes to innovate. And so instead of thinking, I have the vision and, you know, you need to just follow me to the future, it's really about creating an environment in which we can co-create the future together. That kind of mindset and behaving in ways that are consistent with that mindset are what we really do see across the world when we look at leaders who, who do build these organizations that show sustainable innovation. So it may be that you can do it once, you know, you have that vision. But I must confess, one of the people I, I had a surprise opportunity to spend some time with who we would say is a a visionary, was President Nelson Mandela. And one of his beliefs was that one of the most important roles of a leader is to make sure the minority voice is heard. So I think what's implicit in that and what we've been hearing from Rakesh is that these leaders actually see an abundance of talent. They don't see a scarcity of talent. They understand, and this is what I learned also from Pixar and working with Ed Catmull and his colleagues there, is that everybody has a slice of genius. Everybody has talents and passions. Now, whether those talents and passions are going to be useful to your organization, you know, who knows? And in fact, if you discover they're not so useful, then maybe you help them go somewhere where they will be. So they see that others also have talents. And, you know, some of us would be, obviously, when I even when I met President Mandela, I must confess, he said to me, oh, the Harvard professor. And the Harvard professor was absolutely speechless. I mean, I never have felt so dumb. So, But he says some things to you and soon you're you're able to engage. So I think what you can hear from Rakesh, and he makes it all seem very easy, but the lessons to be learned, either it might be part of your, your instinct and how you've already started leading or your own background for whatever reason, but a lot of leaders have to learn how to behave this way, not because they're not well-intended, but when you are a person who has you know big vision, if you will, and lots of ideas, it can be real easy to take up take up all the space. And so I think the other thing we see is, again, they make space for others because they know that they will be better. So Ed Catmull at Pixar came and spoke to the MBAs and he said, always hire people who you think are smarter than you. Hmm. Just just do it. Now, you and I, all three of us know, we know people who would never hire someone that they thought was smarter than them. They just wouldn't. So there is a sense of confidence that, in fact, you're going to be fine and you are actually going to be better if those around you are, quote, smarter than you. 
And one of the top designers in the world talked to me about you always want to treat your work in part as this is your graduate education. So you want to be with people who will help you grow and you can help grow. So going back to what Rakesh said about people attract people, these people, and they want different, you know, he described different reasons why people might want to come to, to Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. But what we do see in innovative organizations is that people, these are people who have big ambitions, who want to really take an idea and have impact. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't want to just play at the idea stage. They want to actually see that, it, you know, they do something that is ambitious. And usually the purpose of the work, actually always, the purpose of the work matters to them, the why of the work. So I think, again, I don't know if I've done this in quite a, um, uh, a, the order I should have done it in, but I think what we've been hearing from Rakesh is exactly what we hear if I'm looking at a Pixar or one of the other people I've had the privilege of, of, of studying by, ac- well, not by accident, I also selected uh, asked him to be in our study, but is the man who ended up running the um, trials at Pfizer for the COVID vaccine. Now, needless to say, I was I sent him an email the other day because the Economist had in it, you know, Pfizer really he was only he was a piece of the team that ran those trials, but the headline was something saved a staggering number of lives because of that work. And just imagine what was on his shoulders and Michael's shoulders when they had to run those trials and get them done as quickly as they possibly could. And very much in line with what, I just wanna add the word ecosystem here. Needless to say, Michael was a small, you know, one small team of all of Pfizer, but Pfizer didn't do that by itself. Pfizer worked with a German biotech company to get access to the technology they needed. They also worked with the regulators and the regulators had to adapt to really be as agile as we need to be. So what we see in these innovative organizations, and it's actually the new book that I'm working on is about these leaders that I'm seeing nowadays, particularly to get the talent they need and to get the tools they need to do the work. They know how to bridge across organizations. So it's Cleveland Clinic, you know, and uh, Mabadla, their, their partners in Abu Dhabi. It's that bridging that he that that Rakesh had to do. So he was an architect of you know trying to the culture and capabilities with his team. He then had to bridge and manage that relationship, and that relationship was so key and is so key in why they were able to get done what they got done with regard to COVID. And just like Michael as well, excellent bridger. And the last role we've been looking at as leadership as leaders in innovation is what we're calling a catalyst role. We don't have this model completely worked out because we haven't, uh, you know, the book isn't quite done. But the catalyst is someone who, in everything he or she or they do, they know that their their actions are shaping the broader environment in which they work. So something that I think we heard underneath what Rakesh was saying that I think people can learn from the cases is how he worked with that broader ecosystem or created a space in which everyone that he was dependent on or their organization was dependent on, and that if you will, the patients were dependent on, they are all doing the best innovative work they can do. So he worked with other hospitals, worked with regulators, uh, worked with uh, both in within the country and then of course with his colleagues who were in other parts of, other Cleveland Clinic colleagues who were in other parts of the world. So I think that there really are these three roles. When we wrote the first book, we really focused on this architecture, being a social architect. The second, we, we begin to see a little bit and we played a little bit with this idea of bridging, but now because of how fast organizations need to move and really how you can't possibly have all inside what you need, this bridging role and being able to translate and integrate and work across organizations. And finally, this thing about how do we create an infrastructure in our ecosystem that will allow us all to be better at what we're doing. And again, you don't do all of that 
unless you are very ambitious in what you're trying to, what your impact needs to be, to be, and unless you get comfortable with not quote being in control. I mean, I don't think a surgeon's necessarily in control when he or she are, you know, they are in the, in the doing surgery, but this whole idea that formal authority is why people are going to, you're going to be able to influence people. It's a very, it, it doesn't really matter if you're the boss when you're trying to get people to innovate. Mm. I mean, innovation is a voluntary act. And if you think about a lot of the people you need to influence to get it done, and that Rakesh has talked about are people over whom he had no formal authority. Mm-hmm. But until you can play in that space and understand how you have influence and align on values and purpose, I don't think you will be able to innovate these days at the scale and the speed that I think many organizations are finding they have to operate at. Mm. And when I, I love this point about the... Um, the values and the purpose. And when I think of Pixar and Pfizer and Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, I think rightfully so that they're some of the most visionary organizations on the planet. Um, but Ed Catmill said, we don't have a vision. You know, we have a common mission. So mm-hmm. how important is it for some of these leaders to, you know, create this safe space where individuals with a common mission and values challenge each other, like Rakesh talking about what they do after each operation? Yeah, no, that is extremely important. So, you know, believe me, as you know, Ed recently won the top award, the sort of the Nobel Prize of technology. The man is a visionary. Again, to be clear, he understands, though, that if he was, I mean, think about it, you know, here he's working with Steve Jobs and John Lasseter. They all have big visions, but they collaborated together because they understood they were better together. So I just want to say, but what he leads with is not his vision because nobody cares, really. I mean, in some ways they do, but they're all talented. Think of all the talent he has in his organization, all the Academy Award winners. It's really about what can we do together? Mm -hmm. And so I think what he means by that, the mission is more tied to the why or the purpose of the work. It's not so much that he's telling people, and they don't necessarily know, and this is what you're referring to, Jeffrey, when they're working on a particular movie, they don't don't necessarily know how that movie is going to turn out. There are so many pivots. Another word that uh, we heard Rakesh say along the way, as he says, most movies start off as kind of ugly babies, maybe even ugly adolescents. But we iterate and we work together and we make it better and better. And we know that when it leaves the studio, it's going to be you know, a, a beautiful adult. Someone's really going to enjoy. So I think that's what he means by it's not about him having a vision or it's more about the why and the purpose and why are we together and what do we want to do for the world and why do family movies and family entertainment that really is healthy, why does that matter? They really care about all of that. So I think when you have that common base of values and the purpose about how you're doing your work, you're much more likely to be successful. The other theme that is is here is that you need to be in relationship with people. You need to be connected to people. So one thing that they don't have at at Pixar is they don't really have the sort of the free agent model. Many of them have been together for 20 plus years. They have a base. They understand. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They know what it means when, you know, a certain facial expression that that person needs help. Or that person's fine, thank you very much. So I think one of the things we always forget is that we are human and connection matters. So I think what you've heard from Rakesh, when he talked about teams that have been together, you know, surgical teams for years, even maybe decades, that 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 connection, and we know that about surgical teams really from research, the more you know someone, the more likely you are to take the necessary calculated risks, thoughtful risks that are required when you're trying to do something new. So I think he's really his stories and the lessons that can be learned from them. They've been illustrated in the way he just naturally answered 
answered your questions. So Rakesh, there's uh, no mountain that you haven't climbed and no mountain that you haven't skied down. What's next for you? It's too early to say, but I will say that uh, based on everything I've learned from the incredible people and teams and organizations I've worked for, I will be uh, trying to uh, accomplish something within my future teams that we haven't never done or seen before. And that truly will be a meaningful vision for the remainder of my life on the planet. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little something new that will help you become an even better leader. If you want to join our community and receive advice from the country's most admired leaders, we invite you to check out all of our episodes at www.imperfectleaders.com.